thankful to be able to enter into this communion service um, with you. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 14 this morning. We're going to hang. Uh, we're going to wait a little bit on John 3, and I'm going to start that when I get back from uh, next weekend. And so this morning, I want to spend some time thinking about the meaning and significance of the Lord's Supper, just to prepare our hearts, prepare our minds for what we're about to enter into and the significance of why it is we do this and what it is that we're doing. So Mark chapter 14 is one of the the sections that portrays this, starting in verse 22. Mark chapter 14, verse 22 says, And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and break it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. So, as we come, as we do, several times a year, to the Lord's table, I think it's important, and sometimes we do this on the Wednesday before, but I think it's important that we are reminded that what we're doing is not just some sort of a sentimental ceremony this morning. We're not doing something just to do it. The elements that we'll take, the bread and the wine are loaded with significance. We're communicating something here this morning. Although it's not really, it's not an ordinance whenever we wash one another's feet. It's loaded with significance. It's not just some sort of a sentimental thing to where we say, isn't that so sweet? We're proclaiming something. We're saying something. And so this morning, I want to take a little bit of time to just remind us exactly what that is what it is that we're doing. It's, it's helpful to, to see what Luke says in Luke 22 as it relates to the Lord's Supper. Something here that you'll be familiar with, but it's still a good, a good reminder. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, it says that Jesus took bread and gave thanks and He broke it. And he gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. This morning we're doing something that is a remembrance, or we might call it a memorial. We're doing something this morning in a very specific way to recall to mind a reality that our Lord said, I don't want you to forget this. And I don't want you to cease from proclaiming this. And so it's, it's uh, according to 1 Corinthians uh, 11.26, uh, as we take the Lord's Supper, we're publicly proclaiming 
the Lord's death, we're, we're remembering something, we're, we're proclaiming something. And then also in the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating something. Hey, as we come together and as we enter into this, it is a time that's solemn, it is a time that's sober, and that's fine and that's appropriate. But brothers and sisters, it's also a time that we're celebrating a reality. Okay, this is a joyous event. There are times there people can kind of feel funny about the fact that they could come to the Lord's table and maybe not be moved. Times where people who take maybe a more sentimental approach think they haven't done it right unless they're crying by the end. There's nothing wrong if you shed tears. There is something wrong if you feel like you have to in order for it to mean something. What we're doing this morning is we are celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ came into a broken and fallen world and He lived a perfect life and gave that perfect life as a sacrifice on behalf of His people. And He was raised for our justification so that we meet Sunday after Sunday and Wednesday after Wednesday celebrating the fact that we have been reconciled to God through Christ and that our righteousness sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us and He will one day come back and make that relationship more of a reality. When I say more of a reality, I mean that in an experiential sense and give us the fullness of our redemption that He purchased for us on the cross. And so, in some ways, we come together to remember. In some ways, we come together to proclaim. And in some ways, we come together in anticipation of the fact that what Christ has done, He is continuing to do, and He one day will complete. And we celebrate that reality. And so let's take a little bit of a piece-by-piece piece approach to this. So number one, we come together to observe the Lord's Supper. We are celebrating the crucifixion of Christ. The crucifixion of Christ. Mark 14, 24, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Talked about the bread being his body, which was broken. It's, it's strange that we would celebrate such a thing, isn't it? Strange that we would celebrate the breaking of someone's body, the shedding of someone's blood. But whenever we understand the crucifixion of Christ in context and in relation to our dire need, we are celebrating the fact that the wrath of God fell on His Son rather than on us. We're celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ was made a propitiation by the Father. That is, the Father is satisfied with the punishment that was laid on His Son for us. It's uh, Galatians chapter... Six, 
type sentiment. You can turn there if you like. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. You see, brothers and sisters, whenever we celebrate the crucifixion of Christ, that means as we come together this morning, we are certainly not here to celebrate our performance before the Lord. We're not here to celebrate the fact that we've gotten it right. We're not here to celebrate the fact that even after we were made alive through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we've done so well with what the Lord has given us. We we do not glory in anything that we bring to this table because the only thing that we bring to this table is a need to be covered by the blood of Christ. Paul says, God forbid that I, or as it were, that we should glory. The word glory there just means weight. means to magnify something. That we should revel in anything save the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. When, when, when we come here, it's a proclamation, it's a reminder once again that outside of Jesus Christ, I am nothing and I have nothing. It reminds us of a passage that we quote so often in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And so as we come saying outside of the cross of Christ, I have nothing and I am nothing, we say under the blood of Jesus Christ, I have everything and I am everything that God requires me to be. Isn't that something? That's a big, big announcement. That's a big proclamation. That's a big claim. So wait a minute. Wait a minute. I have everything? Yeah. Yeah. Under the blood of Christ, I am everything? Yes. You're everything that you need to be in order for God to be satisfied with you if you've been covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, well, I have so much room to grow. I have so many areas that need to be matured. And that's true. But none of that growth will ever make God love you or like you anymore. None of that growth could ever be pleasing. None of that growth could ever be possible outside of the blood of Jesus Christ that's shed for us. And so we do not come this morning saying, I'm so thankful that our level of maturity is where it is. I'm so thankful that what we believe is so much more accurate. While we're thankful for those things, we bring none of those things to this table. We come to the table empty-handed saying that we glory in nothing save the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's through the cross that we've received everything that we could ever possibly receive from the hand of the Father. It's through Him that all spiritual blessings in heavenly places have made their way to us. Ephesians 1.4, we are chosen in Him. That's this reality that we've been united with Him 
We are in Christ. We've been adopted by Him. We've been accepted in Him. And we've been redeemed, that is, bought out of the slave market of sin through Him and through His blood. We've talked about this a good bit, even through our series in the, in the Old Testament that's moved into John. But as we think about these things and as we think about what we're celebrating, brothers and sisters, first and foremost, we are celebrating Jesus Christ. The one that this book is about from Genesis to Revelation. We're celebrating the fact that we've come to know Him and that we've been made whole through Him. So, the crucifixion of Christ. Number two, we're celebrating not only the fact that we've been covered in the blood of Christ, that we've been united to Him and that we've received all blessings through Him, but we're celebrating the fellowship that we have with the saints. You know, there's a reason why this is not an isolated ceremony. There's a reason why that you don't come on Wednesday and we send everybody home with a little thimble of wine and a little speck of bread. And that's because we're entering into this corporately. Not only are we celebrating the fact that personally that I've been united to Christ, as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we're celebrating that reality equally for every believer, every member here. And so this isn't some little isolated thing where the Lord has blessed us with this private relationship with Him that is, is just a one-on-one -on -one disconnected. No, that's not it. It's what we've said so many times about the book of Ephesians, the first half of it. It's the fact that we've been united to Christ and because of that, we've also been united to one another. We believe that all of God's children have been chosen in Him and have been united to Him. And because of that, we are united with one another in a very real way. And we celebrate that. Think about this, and we talk about it some. Think about the oddness of this congregation. All the variation that exists within this group. Most of us would not choose to hang out with each other just to hang out. We would now that we love one another and know one another, but I just mean naturally speaking, we, many of us have very little in common. But we've got one thing in common. And that one thing that we have, the fact that we've been united with Christ is so powerful that many of us will spend 40, 50, 60 years in relationship with one another. Whereas we would have never done that otherwise. Brothers and sisters, this is a celebration of the fact that not only have we been brought into and adopted into or adopted as child of God, but we've also been brought into the family of God to enjoy the blessings of God through that family. Ephesians chapter 1, 
I'm sorry, not one. Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 18. For through Him, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, when he's starting in verse 18, through him we both, you know this already, but the both there is Jews and Gentiles. But the principle stays Consistent for us. We all are here together celebrating the fact that we come to God through one person, and that is Jesus Christ. And because that's the case, it's not just this idea that we've been united because of uh, some sort of a... um, some sort of a connection that we all have with one person. That's the basis. But the other reality is this. Christ is actively at work building us up together into a habitation of God. And so what we have together, we could never have apart from one another. And what we have together is a direct result of the risen Christ. We've been placed into a body. A body where each member has been given gifts that would supply grace. Gifts that would supply nourishment. So as we come together to observe the Lord's Supper. We celebrate that. We celebrate that and we celebrate the blessing that it is to us as individuals. And we celebrate the blessing that it is as a body, a corporate body. So we say in the Lord's Supper, we come to celebrate the crucifixion of Christ. We've come to celebrate the fellowship of the saints. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 It says that we ought to do this until He come. And so part of the other thing that we're celebrating, one of the other things that we're celebrating as we come to the Lord's table is this anticipation of the future return of Jesus Christ. Every time we come to the Lord's table, we are implicitly saying we are expecting Him to come back. The reason we're still doing this is because that hasn't happened yet. And one of the reasons why, I say one of the reasons why, maybe I should say the reason why we do this until He comes is because when He comes, we're going to receive the fullness of the substance that we're symbolizing here this morning. We will enter into an unhindered,
unhindered relationship with Jesus Christ that is not tainted by sin. It's not tainted by our weakness. It's not tainted by our uh, prone to being distracted and prone to wandering and all of that stuff. What Brother Aaron mentioned before the closing uh, or the opening hymn that the weak can just pound on us and we can get so consumed with things. That's true. Right? And there's no sense in acting like it's not. That's not a sign of spiritual maturity or spiritual immaturity. That's just a sign that you still live in a fallen world. But as we come together and we celebrate, observe, remember the Lord's Supper, we're anticipating a time where our communion with Christ and our fellowship with one another will not be hindered, will not be interrupted by anything. Isn't that something? That's a, that's a that's a a marvelous anticipation. We're anticipating, along with Paul in Philippians one six, that Christ is going to complete what He started. We think about that corporately, and we also think about that individually. There are times where, based on First Corinthians eleven, people examine themselves and times see sin that's there and refrain from entering into the Lord's Supper. And I think that's an error most of the time. Brothers and sisters, if you've done any real self-evaluation before you came to the Lord's table, you found sin. You found areas that need to be addressed. When we come to the Lord's table, we're not saying, I've arrived. As we said earlier, we're also not saying I've taken the grace of God and I've done very well with it. We're not saying that either. What we're saying is I've tasted the grace of Christ and I'm holding on to it for dear life. I glory in nothing save the cross of Christ. Now, if you were to examine yourself and you were to come to the conclusion that you no longer see your need for Jesus Christ, then you better stay away from the Lord's table. You're taking it in an unworthy manner from the standpoint of it's a hypocritical partaking. You see, we're looking forward to this return of Jesus Christ because we're looking forward to a day when the work that was initiated in us, the work that is ongoing in us, is brought to a completion. It's 1 John 3. Look in 1 John 3. This is another way to say what we're saying. Really, this first verse could, could cover the first three points that we've made. First John three, verse one, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. 
And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And so number one, again, we're talking about preparing our hearts, our minds. What is it that we're observing here? What is it we're remembering here? What is it we're proclaiming here? Well, we say along with John, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. We're here this morning because the Father loved us in a way that makes no sense to the natural mind. That we should be called the sons of God. We are now God's sons, but it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. Just saying what we said earlier. When He comes, we'll be like Him and we will see Him as He is. We anticipate the day, not only that He returns, but we anticipate the day that we will be like Him. That it will be our meat to do the will of the Father. That we would do good and evil does not dwell in us. Right? We would do good and we will do good. The anticipation that one day the world that we live in will be completely redeemed, completely restored, completely renewed. And we will dwell in the light of Christ. And so we are, big picture speaking, we are here to celebrate these three realities. That when Christ was crucified, I was crucified with Him. And that when Christ was crucified, my brothers and sisters were crucified with Him. And that since we were crucified with Him, He's coming back to complete what He started in each one of us. Now, when we say communion, what we're talking about is commonality. When we say fellowship, same thing. It's a joint participation. And so we are all participating in the same reality. We have all been made alive in Christ. We are all seeking to walk in fellowship with Christ. And as we walk in fellowship with Christ, we're walking in fellowship with one another. We are all anticipating the same reality. That one day, this work of grace will be complete. This work of redemption will come to completion. And our fellowship with Him and our fellowship with one another will be completely unhindered. And so with that being the significance, the second thing I want to talk about is the elements. The elements, which is going to be you know, some overlap here. As we take the bread and as we take the wine, these are symbolic. It's meant to be a symbolism. There have been some that have made far too much out of the elements. So. Again, it's a way to remember. It's a way to memorialize a reality. The first is unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. Again, back in Mark chapter 14. They were here taking the Passover. And we know all the way back in Exodus that the Passover was taken with unleavened bread. And so Jesus took the bread 
and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take and eat, this is my body. This is my body. So why? Sometimes people can say more about this than what Scripture actually says about it. But we would be dishonest to look over the fact that this unleavened bread is loaded with Old Testament symbolism. You bring that into the New Testament and they continue to acknowledge it. But if we were to start out here and work our way in, why do we use unleavened bread? I would say, first of all, we use it because that's what Jesus Christ used. Now, there's a reason why he used it, and we're going to talk about that. But we used it because that's what Christ used. Secondly, we use it because if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we get a little bit of the symbolism, the significance of the symbolism here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 6, he's talking about the Corinthian church putting up with sin. He says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Now I go there just to look at the illustration or the symbolism there of the leaven. He's speaking about sin, and he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? What he's saying there is, Do you not know that a little bit of sin will permeate the entire lump, the entire loaf, here, the entire congregation? Do you not know that the effect of this, the, the effect of this leaven will permeate and affect the entire lump? You could look in the Old Testament, you could look even more in the New Testament, and see that it is a regular symbol for sin. The unleavened bread that is to represent the body of Jesus Christ is a representation of what 1 Peter would call the spotless Lamb of God. One of the things that we're remembering and one of the things that we're proclaiming is that Jesus Christ lived a spotless life on earth. No sin. No, no rebellion. No taint in motive, thought, action. He was the perfect Lamb of God. And as we take that unleavened bread, one of the things that we're symbolizing, if you turn to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 18, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so in some ways, we could think of the unleavened bread being kind of like the uh, 
the Ebenezer spot where he says, when your children ask, what is this? Then you tell them. In some ways, we maintain the unleavened bread as a reminder and as a point of explanation. We do this because we are celebrating the fact that we've been redeemed by the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God forbid that we glory in anything save the cross. Why is that important? Well, it's important for at least two reasons. Number one, out of Isaiah 53, verse 11, the Father had to be satisfied with the sacrifice that Christ made. And the only way He could be satisfied is if that sacrifice was spotless, without taint. And then secondly, after your sins were forgiven, you still needed some kind of standing before God. And without the imputed righteousness of Christ, you had no standing at all. And so the unleavened bread symbolizes not only the perfect acceptable sacrifice that Christ made on behalf of His people to the Father, but it also secures our righteous standing before the Father as we are covered in His righteousness. That's the unleavened bread. We partake of that and we say, when Christ's body was broken, it was broken for me. Secondly, the wine. The wine. Jesus Christ says in Mark chapter 14 again, Mark chapter 14, verse 23, says, and he took the cup and we had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. This is my blood of the New Testament or the New Covenant. And the wine here is symbolic of the blood of Christ. It's what we've been purchased with. It's what the covenant has been sealed with. What the covenant has been covered with. And so it represents our redemption. 1 John 1, 5 through 7, it represents the fact that we've been cleansed, we've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ as we've been brought into covenant with God the Father. So you have the wine, you have the bread, and then lastly, we said this already, whenever we're, talking, whenever we're thinking about foot washing, as we enter into that, we do not consider foot washing to be an ordinance. We don't put it on par with the wine and with the bread, but we do ex consider this to be a biblical practice. We do consider this to be something that we do as an example that Christ gave us in John 13. So let's go there, and when we, as we go there, I want to answer a couple of questions that I've gotten over the probably the last several communion services about foot washing and how we ought to carry this out. John 13, we want to think about it in a couple of different ways. First, we want to see the example, then we want to see the exhortation. 
So in John 13, verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He was come from God and went to God, He riseth from supper and laid aside His garments and took a towel and girded Himself. After that, He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith He was girded. So we have here, there's there's a some exchange and interaction with Christ and Peter after that. And for our purposes today, we're not going to look at that. But we see that after they took the Passover together, Christ washed the disciples' feet, and then He gives them an exhortation starting in verse 12. So after He had washed their feet and had taken His garments and was set down again, He said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. So here's the exhortation that Jesus gives after He washes the disciples' feet. He says, if I've washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's. Now, it's important that we understand what we're doing and what's being symbolically represented here. When we wash one another's feet, we're really expressing that my place in your life is one of willing, humble, Loving service. That's what this is all about. It's not just some kind of a quirky deal where we get water in pans and splash it on each other's feet. We're saying, I am, I am committing to you and I am committing to everyone else that my place in the life of the members of this body is one of willing, humble, and loving service. Galatians 6.2 I'm committing myself to bear one another's burdens in this body because I love you and because I've been united to you. Now, one thing that this means, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it, but one thing that this means is that the most invested and significant relationships that we have in our life ought to be within the body. Now, that's not to say you can't have friends outside of the body. It is to say if the only kinds of relationships that you have in the body are superficial relationships, you are missing the point. What we're saying here is that I'm committed to you and you're committed to me. We're saying I will encourage you and I will receive encouragement from you in love as that's needed. Now think about that. Think about the commitment there. It's a a beautiful commitment. But it's a commitment that we've got to put teeth on the symbol, don't we? I'm thankful that that we wash feet. I'm thankful that we do this symbolic thing. And brothers and sisters, I'm also thankful that in our body, the reality of this is expressed in many different ways. But I want to encourage us as we enter into that service again today that this is what we're doing. By the way, that's another reason why 
when we're finished with eating the bread and drinking the wine and we move into washing one another's feet, we're still in a service. It shouldn't be chaotic. It shouldn't be loud, joking, laughing over frivolous things because we're not finished yet. We've still got one more thing to symbolize. And it's a beautiful thing. We're saying, I'll encourage you and I'll receive encouragement from you in love. I will confront you and I will receive being confronted from you in love. I will help you and I will receive help from you in love. I will invest my life in you and I will receive you investing your life in me in love. So we wash one another's feet. One another's feet, we're saying, I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and walk through the trenches of life with you. What a blessing. What a blessing. We're saying that serving you is part of my service to Christ. Loving you is an expression of my love to Christ. Being united to you Part of my union with Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, based off those last three things, you, it's, it's easy to see we're talking about something big here, aren't we? We're talking about something beautiful here. And so one of the questions that we've had uh, off and on over the last little while has been, is it okay to let our unconverted children or friends participate in the foot washing portion of the service. And so I think based off of what we just said, here are a couple of things to think about. Number one, I think any Christian can in good conscience wash an unbeliever's feet with the purpose of committing themselves to loving and serving them in a Christ-like way. I, I, I don't think there's any conflict there. I don't think there's any problem with that. Here's where the problem comes into play. An unbeliever cannot make that same kind of a commitment. An unbeliever cannot make the commitment that I'm going to love you and I'm going to serve you in a Christ-like way. And we do an unbeliever a disservice by pretending that they can. Okay? So think about this. We said it already, but I'll say it again. The foot washing service is not meant to just simply be sentimental. One of those things where we say, well, wasn't that sweet? I'm glad we still do that. It's not meant to just be a, a sweet, sentimental service. It's meant to be an ex, a, a symbolic expression of Christ-like love to one another. And so anything that enters into that, that's not painting that picture, doesn't belong there. And so the only way that this can be symbolically carried out is through believers. And so how do we carry out the... The, the foot washing service in a way that's consistent with what's being communicated, I think it's through believers. Believers washing the feet of believers. And so, again, 
brothers and sisters, each part of this, as we partake of the wine, as we partake of the bread, as we wash one another's feet as an expression of being united to one another and serving one another in a Christ-like way, each part of this is meant to focus on and exalt the work of Jesus Christ in the lives of His people. And so we don't want to do anything to distort that picture. And we also don't want to do anything that would be a lie. And so, as we enter into this, let's enter into this, number one, being reminded of the great privileges that have come to us because of the great sacrifice that Christ made for His people. And then, let's be reminded of the blessing that we get to enter into this and we get to partake of this with the family of God that we've been placed into, in the body of Christ that we've been placed into, so that we might grow and love and appreciate and serve one another in Christ-likeness. Let's pray. Father, we do this often, but we mean it. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for what You've given us in Jesus Christ. We thank You for the redemption that we have in Him. We thank You, Lord, that His body was broken for us, that His blood was shed for us, the blood of the New Testament, the new covenant that was sealed in His blood. We thank You, Lord, for the body of Christ, for the, for the saints that You've gathered together, for the church of God here that You have called out and You've brought together and joined through the Spirit. Now, Father, as we enter into this portion of the communion service, we pray that we would honor You. We pray that we would enter in with a celebratory heart. We pray that we would enter in, again, thankful for what You've done and what You've given. But that we would also enter in uh, in sobriety for the way You've called us to relate to You and to relate to one another. Father, would You bless us to reflect the work and the character of Christ through the symbolism that we will do, we will use, that was prescribed by You as we move forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.